From Melicity and the Center for Partnership Studies, I'm Kaya Tingley, and this is One Wheel, One World. Today we're talking with Mark Green. His new book, The Little Me Too Book for Men, has been called a thunderbolt. It's an uncommon piece of common sense. As Mark describes it, it's a book that answers the question he started asking himself, what happened to me? And how did I come to believe that these rules are the rules I'm supposed to live by? Inspired by fatherhood, Mark took his curiosity into research, then writing and speaking, and is now the senior editor of The Good Men Project and the author of numerous books on this topic of men and how they fit into the culture. What men believe to be the truth of themselves And what they've been told all their lives is the truth of themselves. If we can get a little daylight in there, in that that space, in that little bit of room between those two things, between culture and identity, that's the place where men can begin to, to explore change and explore what they really need versus what they've been told they need. Interestingly, Mark also says, what we're finding is that getting out of the man box is profitable. If you run a big company, you're going to make more money if you get rid of the man box. I find this interesting. Mark is also the author of Remaking Manhood and the relational book of Parenting, which he co-authored with his wife. He is active on Medium, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and anywhere else you'd care to talk to him. You can learn more about Mark and his wife at their website, thinkplaypartners.com. And now, without further ado, here's Mark. So, Mark, it's great to talk with you today. I'm very inspired by your writing. I know you're working in a difficult space, and you've got a couple of new books out. Tell me a little bit about this conversation you talk about. You talk about the man box culture and the dominant culture of manhood in America. You talk about this old narrative that tells men that they're, they're real men if they can prove it with their wallet or their fists. And there's a new conversation going on. You can see it all around us. Who is having this conversation? Where is it happening? Well, I, I have to say the conversation that I'm involved in and that I'm watching grow has become my life work. The, the work that I do in my life is around exploring and understanding what our culture of manhood has created for for us as men. And and I have to say the whole my engagement in this started out as uh as a need to blog about fatherhood when my son was born. Uh that was 13 years ago. And one of the things that that came up for me pretty quickly was how was this culture that I was living in, how was it going to inform his life? And what was it going to tell him about being a boy and about being a man? And when I went down that path of inquiry, uh, the second question that came up for me pretty quickly was, what, what, what the hell happened to me? What happened? What was this thing that I just lived through for so many decades that that formed and created my opinion of myself, of others, of what what it was like to be a human being in the world. What exactly happened? Because it happens to all of us 
but we often don't get the opportunity to actually deconstruct it or explore it or think it through. Right. And the Toltecs call it the domestication and the dream of the planet and that we're brought into the system and taught the rules. And then we are um, subject to those rules and we live our lives by them, even if we don't know it. Right. And in the, and in my, you know, the, the little me too book for men, the introduction of the book, the first thing I say in that book is what my goal is for the conversation. And what I'm trying to do is to get men to see the difference between what they believe they are, who they believe they are, and what our larger culture taught them to believe in regards to that. And so if we can get a little sliver of daylight between what men believe to be the truth of themselves and what they've been told all their lives is the truth of themselves, if we can get a little daylight in there, in that, in that space, in that little bit of room between those two things, between culture and identity, that's the place where men can begin to, to explore change and explore what they really need versus what they've been told they need. And so that's the conversation. And whether or not people are having it, I guarantee you they're living it. And that sense of discomfort and uncertainty and anxiety that men are carrying is because they have not differentiated between what they were told they are and what they believe they are. Right. It's like this um, layer of truth is suddenly like you can peel the corner of it up and see, oh, wait, that's actually not me. That's something that's been laid over me. Who am I? Self-reflection is not a capacity that, that, uh, you know, I talk a lot about man box culture, about the cult, the dominant culture of manhood. And this, this man box culture that we are raised in from the moment we're born, boys from the very moment they are born are impacted by this idea of what, what boys and men should be. And man, man box culture talks about, um, uh, a very limited set of rules, uh, for being quote, a real man, unquote. And those rules include that men are providers, not caregivers, that men never show their emotions, that men are leaders, that men are confident, that men are heterosexual, and that men always get the girls, and that men um, are sports-focused, and they really, they really are, are very much about that conversation over all others. Uh, th- all these ideas of man-box culture are specifically about defining men by what they do, not who they are. So self-reflection is not part of that, that, uh, that identity. And in fact, men who seek to express something authentic about their, their emotional lives, or men who seek to explore manhood outside the sort of limited range of what's uh, been approved by man box culture are immediately shamed and bullied back into the the more acceptable performance. And one thing that's really important when we talk about self-reflection for men is that particular capacity is not only not taught in man box culture, it's a threat to man box culture. So in the moment that, that we talk about this conversation, men may be living it, but the idea of actually engaging it is, uh, is prohibited 
And and we understand that we may be punished for attempting to have that conversation. Right. It's it's so interesting that we talk about the man box culture and we talk about feminism, but really both of those terms are all encompassing of people of every gender. And it's just the perspective, the lens you're looking through when you're looking at what this thing is. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel that obviously man box culture has defined part of my experience as a woman, the frustration of being told, here's your role, now play it. But that's never really spoken it's subliminally indoctrinated and domesticated into our little brains as infants and through our i mean once you start looking once you peel back the co- the cover of this culture <clears throat> you see it everywhere it's in every commercial it's in every show it's in every book it's in every story you see the the, the narrative of domination and violence you see the the cultural impositions of how this is supposed to work and we're struggling to find that gap between what the culture says we are and who we are. How do mm-hmm. we how do we support the finding of that gap, the desire to find that gap? I mean, so many times the, it's the matrix. Which which pill do you want to take? Do you want to heal this or do you want to put it back on because it's too hard to work on it? Yeah. Well, what's interesting too is, and I say this often, if if we could magically snap our fingers and every single man in the world would cease to enforce the man box, it would still be taught to our sons by their mothers because women have internalized this structure of power and to, to, to totally address it and to totally have the conversation. It amuses me to no end when occasionally someone will pop into a comment thread or because I, I quote the work of Niobe way who did a book called um, deep secrets about boys, adolescent relationships I did a, um, I also referenced Judy Chu's book, When Boys Become Boys, and I'll reference them and someone will, will step into the conversation and say, why are women in this conversation? This is, a, this is a man's conversation. And my response to that is, you were taught about this by women or women are asking you to change this. There is no way that this conversation can happen without women being in it because women are integral to how men define themselves and vice versa. So let's talk about the price people pay. We're, you know, I say that, that we're in this conversation, whether we're aware of it or not, because we're living it. We're literally living this conversation and we can live it as, uh, as victims of it, or we can live it as people who are seeking to create change around it. And the price men pay for all of this privilege and power that the man box supposedly gives us is that we are, as as young men, as boys, we are trained through the use of uh, the word sissy or faggot or uh, girly, that certain aspects of our naturally occurring human capacity for connection are, are, are not appropriate for us. The simple way to say it is that men, sh- you know, real men don't express emotions, but what they're really getting at is that real men don't have an authentic self-reflection about and engagement in the world about who they are as individuals, who they are in more authentic ways. And the price we pay for that is that young boys are trained out of that 
way of expressing. They're taught that that's feminine. So if you're going to cry at the at, at the park or if you're going to express a need for deeper connection or any of those things, you're being girly or gay. And in that moment, we said we cut them off from the trial and error process that takes years for any of us, men or women, to grow our relational capacities, our relational intelligence, our ability to do the nuanced back and forth in more authentic, meaningful ways to form relationships that will last a lifetime, that will give us what we need in terms of support during times of emotional or economic crisis, the, the ability to create community. That's what we strip boys and men of. Instead, they spend their time proving that they can do things that, that, you know, that guarantee they're a real man, that they can make money, that they can lead, that they can control, that they can dominate, that they can have the last word, that they can do all of these things. But what it strips them of is connection in the world. And we know that we're living uh, in a culture that's undergoing an epidemic of loneliness. And, and that's, not, that's not a Hallmark card. That's, a, that's creating real and measurable health impacts. And I'll run through the numbers real quick. But in 2010, the, uh, the AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons, did a study that revealed that one in three Americans age 45 and older are chronically lonely. That means that they don't have anyone to have a conversation with about the, the issues in their life. And then last year, another major study came out from Cigna that said one out of every two Americans, all ages, are either sometimes or always feeling alone. Now, the health impact is equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. So it increases dramatically the likelihood of heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, neurodegenerative diseases, diabetes, obesity, depression. It, it's, and, and these things kill you, right? So where is this coming from? Who is benefiting from keeping this system in place? And I don't ask that as a conspiracy theorist. I'm saying, what is the self-propagating philosophy of this pathology? What is the, why is this still here? If we want to change it, what's holding us back from changing it? When it started is, a, is open to um, sort of conjecture, but I, I see it as having become more cemented in, it, in the negative ways. And by the way, I don't consider traditional manhood to be a bad thing. I consider the enforcement of traditional manhood to be a bad thing. But when you talk about the man box, it's not, it's not enforcing traditional manhood. It's enforcing a caricature of that. But it's taken the most negative caricatures of traditional manhood, and, and it enforces those, right? So this, this question of how it got entrenched, I think it, it sort of came into play in a more significant way during the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, when men were no longer on the farm or in the home with their families all day long, doing what you did collectively, but instead went onto the factory floor or in these air-conditioned offices uh, for 12 hours a day and, were, and disconnected from, from that family process, which would have grown the positive aspects of traditional manhood along with those challenging aspects. So if it began then, we're talking about a generational impact, right? We're, we're no longer talking about something that someone wants to have happen. We're talking about the way it is. And when we talk about something as significant culturally as, as an accepted norm, 
then the only way we're going to break out of it is when the people who are being most negatively impacted start to say no, no more. And in this case, that's the women's movement. Right. It's all the so, it's all the movements. It's you know the Black Lives Matter movement. It's the the LGBTQI movement. It's the, uh-huh. it's all of the people that have not been um, traditionally assigned to that little box of power over. Uh-huh. And and now as the structure of power over people is not working anymore, and we're trying to build a world where the culture is a power with each other type of culture. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's your work is leading in the areas of this conversation. You know, there are there are more and more people working on this and writing about it. And, you know, for all of the ills of the Internet, it certainly has brought together this discussion in a, in a more coherent way so that people all over the world working to change this. Can we work together efficiently and i'm not i'm not saying we're, we're going to make one big collective and change the world but can we change the stories and update the stories we carry around as you say men and manhood and can we do that in a generation i think that the i think that the reason we're alive is going to be the driver for that change um if there if there is anything that's happening right now, there is uh, a cult of individuality and that cult of individuality is driving a lot of the sort of reactive, negative, uh, you know, sort of selfish political and social narratives that, that we get hammered with all the time and that are driving our national politics and, and all of that. But if you believe that everything has a, a shadow and a light side to it, that question of individuality is also going to give people an opportunity to say, what are the rules running in my life and why am I necessarily accepting them? But I also real quickly, Kaya, I want to jump back to something you said earlier, which is really important. You included uh, Black Lives Matters and LGBTQ issues and so on as part of the groups that are saying, you know, man box culture is not, is not working for me. So we need to challenge this. The reason I, I talk about the women's movement specifically is because for a lot of men who are invested in man box culture, the women's movement is happening in their homes, in their beds, in their daily conversations, in their work relationships, in ways that they can still insulate themselves from those other movements, right? Um, um, a, a white male like myself can go through his life without ever having a personal impact from um, what gave rise to uh, Black Lives Matters. Now, I can care about it. I can be engaged. I can support it. I can work for that change. But that's not happening in my house to the degree that perhaps, and, 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 and let me be clear, it is on, you know, I'm married to a woman who was born and raised in India. So I understand color. I understand people of color to that degree. But for, for millions and millions and millions of men of all political stripes, this conversation that has been created by the women's movement is seeping in. It's coming in. You know, they're like, they're, they're stuffing towels under the door to keep it out. It's still creeping into their lives, right? I'm living this right now. I mean, to some extent, there's a lot of emotion under this whole thing. And 
you're so right when you say we're not just talking about this we're, we're living it right I am personally very honored to be working with Dr. Rianne Eisler and the Center for Partnership Studies in putting together this podcast. Our approach is to take the four cornerstones of cultural transformation, as will be explained in detail by Dr. Eisler in her upcoming book, Nurturing Our Humanity. These four cornerstones are one, childhood and education, two, gender and sexuality, three, economics, and four, story and language. Our goal is to bring you a tool from each of these amazing authors or teachers that in 45 minutes, you can listen to a podcast and take away a tool for your toolbox that you can use right now to impact the world in a positive way. That is our entire mission. So thank you to the Center for Partnership Studies. Our website there is centerforpartnership.org. And there are classes and seminars and webinars and all sorts of interesting information that you might want to plug into if you find the content of this podcast to your liking. Thanks for listening and back to our show. My understanding is that you know, the conversations that parents have been having with their children for the past 15 years. And I often point to this idea of helicopter parents, right? The, ho- the horrible helicopter parents. Oh, my God, they're, they're not letting their children do X, Y, Z. And they're always right there. On Well, there's a lot of conversations happening in that space that I don't think anybody fully understands the implications of what happens when you engage in conversation with your children. When I grew up, nobody talked to me. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a conversation happening between me and my parents. We didn't do that. But when you engage children in conversations, I don't care how, I don't care where those conversations go. Just the power of conversation has created a generation, the millennials, who are different. They're fundamentally different in their view of the world. And they're more receptive to the back and forth of relating. We much of my work and my partner's work, Saliha and I, we, we wrote a book called The Relational Book for Parenting. We, you know, we talk about these issues of manhood and men and the, the little Me Too book for men, in case people don't really understand what it is or why it was written. It, it's essentially my exploration of what the heck happened to me, coupled with a boot camp kind of conversation for men about this is what happened to you. Now, you can acknowledge it or you can, you can refute it, but this is my take on everything that's impacting you right now to affect your view of yourself and to silence you and keep you out of this conversation. These are the pressures that you're feeling to not self-reflect, to not explore, to not create change that, that, that could dramatically improve the quality of your life and make you live longer. Right. And not to, to not be silent anymore. Like the pressure, the pressure to stay silent and to stay in the man box is killing you, just so you know, in case you're wondering. And it's also ruining the lives of those around you because it's depriving them of the more authentic version of you, which everyone wants and needs. And it's self-imposed. And it's stripping your community of your participation. 
So these are the prices you're paying for that whole party called the man box. But in the moment that that men and women look around and 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 on the Internet, we're seeing huge diversity. And men are saying, yeah, the man box, this is how it is. And blah, look at that guy over there. I, I'd kind of like to do it like he's doing. No, no, no. I'm to stay in the man box. We're see- it used to be you didn't see all this diversity. You didn't see all these other options. You didn't see all these conversations. So, yes, the Internet is a nightmare of reactive, racist, crazy crap. But it is also a window into a wide other range of being. And in that way, the conversation is going to happen. It takes me to Brene Brown's work on courage and vulnerability and shame. Her work speaks to, you know, I I know that manhood and masculinity and the divine masculine are all different things, right? But Brene Brown's work hits at that nerve, kind of like, you know, it points right to the spot where we're feeling the pain and goes, that's it. That's where it's at. And if you can learn to be brave and wholehearted and courageous and vulnerable and live in connection, then you're going to be in a scarier place, but it's going to turn out better. And more and more people are getting this message. I know they are because she wouldn't be so popular otherwise. There are more and more people talking about this sort of this new way of approaching things. It's just the, what are the first, you know, how do you take the baby steps into that? You know, be mindful of your relationships. Right. Well, at the frame that I use with with uh, men and women, because women suffer from the same sort of challenges sometimes. I mean, we're all we're all on a spectrum emotionally, relationally. You you know, the spectrum uh, of um, of masculinity is vast, and uh, and and you can break it up into little sections if you want. You can say, okay, here's here's gay masculinity, and here's traditional masculinity, quote unquote. But there's overlap between those. There are gay men who perform you know, traditional manhood better than I can, right? Uh, and, and when you start to say, well, okay, they're performing traditional manhood, what is that? Well, then you got to make a whole nother huge spectrum because what do we mean by tradition, right? Are we talking about cultural tradition? In which case you have Jewish tradition, Irish tradition, Chinese tradition. We In America alone, we probably have 2,000 traditional cultures, each of which has a version of manhood that you can perform in the proper way for that culture, Latino culture, whatever culture you want to pick. So, so we, we have these, we have this little idea of masculinity and then we, we look a little closer and it, and it breaks out into a, a multitude of masculinities. And then we go, and then we look at one and we go, well, traditional masculinity is the problem. And so we, then we open that up and we go, holy crap, that's got 10,000 versions too. So which one is the problem? And ultimately what we have to say to ourselves is, the diversity of masculinities, the plural, is infinite, and there is no single masculinity which is the problem. The problem is the culture of manhood, of this man box manhood, which is attacking every masculinity equally. I mean, believe me, if you're even even if, if you're a, tr- a totally lockstep traditional dude, whatever the heck that really means. Trying to do manhood to the best of your ability, it's still kicking your ass. It's attacking everyone equally all the time because manbox culture isn't about doing it right. It's about creating a hierarchical pecking order structure in which bullying and policing is the purpose. It is designed to bully and police in order to ensure 
that men fear and distrust each other, that men are always looking over their shoulder to see if they're doing it right, that men never feel like they've completely succeeded. That's the purpose of it, because in that way, those at the very top of this pecking order can continue to drive this narrative of you're not good enough, keep trying, nope, try again, keep going, come on, keep trying to meet my expectations of you. And the sad part is that I don't care how high up this hierarchy you are, you're still going to face the same toxic outcome, which is isolation. We have a guy who is the poster child for man box culture in the most powerful position in this country. And I guarantee to you, he is lonely. He is lashing out and wounded and rageful and lonely. And this is the this is the challenge with man box culture is that it is designed to keep men in a state of uncertainty and women in relationship with men are fed full of that uncertainty as well. There is a lack of authentic communication and connection, which is the only cure we have for, for all of the, of the variables and uncertainty and, and challenges that we face as human beings. Community can solve that for us. It can create the kind of resiliency and the kind of, of uh, energy that we can rely on when, we, when we're confronted with challenges. So it's a mess and it's a self-perpetuating mess, right? Until we, until we as men and women say, you know what? We could have a good life if we want. Why, why don't we do that for a while? This, is, this has been interesting, but you know, we're wrecking the planet. We're, we're leaving each other out on the streets to, to freeze to death. We're lonely. We're dying sooner than we have to. And life sucks. So maybe, maybe it's time for a ch- try something different, you know? The One Wheel, One World podcast is proudly supported by Future Motion, creators of the One Wheel Electric Skateboard. Their slogan is, we are in the business of making the future rad. And if you are at all interested in a highly practical snowboard-like experience that can get you from point A to point B, 18 mile range, it's blissful to ride people. I own one. I really highly recommend this thing. Go to onewheel.com. They've got the One Wheel Plus and the One Wheel XR, and either one of them are a joy and a pleasure. We absolutely appreciate their support, and this podcast in association with the Center for Partnership Studies is all about finding a way to create a smooth, sustainable flow of energy through the systems we call culture. And this One Wheel is it's an escape for me to find that flow within myself so that then I can go choose to project that out into the world and help bring more of it into reality. This one wheel thing, it's the real deal. Onewheel.com. Go check it out. You won't regret it. Do you think there's a tipping point in which enough people are ready to give that a go? Or Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's happening. The interesting thing is, I think, I think, human beings are a self-correcting species. I think we, I think we actually move toward the light. I think it's something that we do because for us, we come to understand where our best interest lies intuitively. Now, I'm not saying every human being does that, but I think collectively 
we, we are prone to that. And the tipping point is coming out of a number of different areas, some of them surprising. What we're discovering is that, you know, getting rid of the man box is profitable. You'll, you'll actually, if you run a big company, you're going to make more money if you get rid of the man box. And, and, and this is where we sort of segue into these relational ideas, how to form, uh, you know, more collaborative, co-creative, connect across difference, all of these ideas that come out of a non-man box context, right? So for those of you who haven't seen the book, the relational book for parenting has these great little diagrams that you and your wife have created. Right. The relational wheel is one of them. It's representative of these relational capacities, right? And and one example of that would be listening with curiosity, which is a thing that we can do intentionally in our personal and professional relationships. So, you know, I when you're married for 10 or 20 years, you 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 know this person. When you've been working with Joe in in marketing for 5 years, you know Joe. And the thing we fall prey to sometimes is that we think we know what Joe's going to say. We think we can predict what our partner is going to do. So when we come to them with a question or we come to them with an idea, we fail to to understand that there's great possibility in that moment. So when we say to ourselves, you know what, I'm going to when I talk to my spouse of 15 years today, I'm going to make the attempt to listen with curiosity. And what that means is I'm going to go into that conversation intentionally expecting to be surprised by what they say, to be like, wow, that's a new thing. And when you enter a conversation like that, it, uh, conversations are have multiple threads, right? Any conversation. So if you spread your hands in front of you and say, okay, here's 10 possible threads in a conversation. When we go in expecting to be surprised, we're mindful of all the threads. If we go in assuming we know what their answer is going to be, yeah, they may give that answer as part of the larger conversation. And that's, you know, the second second finger on the left hand. But if that's the only one, we thought, there it is, there's that answer I expected, and we focus on that thread and follow that thread, then the outcome we have predicted. Michael Pollan yeah, talks yeah. about that in his book, uh, How to Change Your Mind, that the adult mind kind of locks mm-hmm. down assumptions because that way it can kind of navigate through the world without having to expend a lot of effort understanding what the new new is. There's this familiar, familiar space from within to, to live. Yeah, that's great. And the, the research being done on psychedelics at Johns Hopkins and NYU, what they're finding is that the dissolution of the neural, the, the default mode network, the ego, and, and the, the work that's, that they're doing with cognitive talk therapy is exactly creating that chink between people's perception of themselves as their ego and their role and their culture, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then their experience during that session. And they're working through this because um, they're finding it. It's a way to to deal with addiction. Um, they're finding it's a way way to deal with existential distress over a terminal disease. I mean, they're doing all sorts of things. But yeah, that space of understanding you are not your ego and starting to question who you are and what you want. I mean, how many times do you get the the, the question? What do you really want? And you struggle to answer it, right? That's the question we're all involved in trying to solve here. And we're doing it on personal levels. We're doing it on levels with our children. We're doing it on levels societally. Mm-hmm. We're all kind of blundering through it together. And I, I think the most important thing is a collective willingness to continue. Yeah. 
to continue yeah. the conversation, to keep going into the hard spaces, to have compassion, and to sort of rebalance the scales between caring and progress. Those two shouldn't be those two shouldn't be different threads. They're the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of the things that I try to do, uh, that we've tried to do with our r- relational book for parenting and, and these relational ideas is t- is just kind of take away this idea that that it's hard work and instead move people toward this idea that there's wonderful stuff that we're not seeing. And when we talk about these threads in a conversation, if you have one idea that you're expecting and you go in and confirm that and move on, you're missing the other nine threads, little ideas that are popping up, new things. And if you instead say, hey, what, what was that you said about over there? Let's talk about that. I have a question about that. Tell me more about that. What you're acknowledging in that moment is that the person you've been married to for 15 years is not the person you married, isn't even the person they were yesterday. That we are all changing and evolving, and we can either impact each other in ways that keep each other static, or we can continue to have these conversations where we we look to be surprised, and we can explore the stuff that's like a breath of fresh air coming into the room. And that's just one relational capacity. We talk about a lot of different ways, but these are not these are not encouragement to get into difficult conversations, which we also have to do. These are capacities that allow us to get air into the room and a sense of sunlight and brightness. And, oh, that is so cool. I wasn't noticing that before. Now I'm seeing it and I'm using it in my relationship and it's brightening things up and making this more uh, generative, right? More creative. More cyclical as well. We should be, we should be having fun. We're, we're hardwired for connection, communication, play, discovery, joy, these things are hardwired into us. We wouldn't have survived as a species without them, right? Right. And yet so many of us find ourselves in the space where we're gritting our teeth and trying to make it through, even though we know we can change our story. We're just not sure how to. Well, I, I hope people will consider the relational book for parenting because it really is about family and it's really about adults as well. The ideas in there are as we grow our children's relational intelligence, we're growing our own. It is a relating. It's, it, it happens in the back and forth of parenting. And as, as we grow our children's way of being in the world, they grow ours, right? So I hope people will consider that as a way to find some of these joyful, uh, playful ways to, to engage this larger conversation. It's a, it's a remarkable book because it gives you, well, at least for me, it gives sort of the combination of the, the words and what you're talking about, the content of what you're mm-hmm. saying. And then mm-hmm. these diagrams that when I find myself in conversation with my six-year-old son or my three-year-old daughter, I'm suddenly aware of this bubble in between us, literally, and and what is their experience and what are they trying to convey? And suddenly it changes the environment for me to have that relationship moment by mm-hmm. moment because mm-hmm. I can take those examples. And my son, my son is six. He told me the other day, he said, you know, in the Bible, they say that God created the, the world in seven days. He said, but aren't we still creating it every day? <laughs> why are they saying that you know, he's six? That's beautiful. So why did creation supposedly end? Because what are we doing otherwise? But we're creating our reality. Yeah. And if we do yeah. that collectively and mindfully, and if we leverage our innate human capacity for connection. Yeah. And that's what, that's what this is all about. This is why you and I are talking. Mm-hmm. 
This is why the people who are listening to this podcast are listening to this podcast, because in a world saturated with the inane tweets of our political leaders and the focus on the negative, we have control over our, our attention. We That is the one thing we really have control mm-hmm. over is where to put our mm-hmm. attention, right? Yeah. And so the more that this story gets out that, that there's a different way to be and that being happy and healthy and having fun and having connection in the world is not a dumb goal. More that story is shared and, and, and I'm talking not about like at the world leader level. I'm talking about at the water cooler level. I'm talking about at the family level. I'm talking kids talking to each other on the bus. Mm -hmm. I'm Mm -hmm. talking about, you know, sports teams having important conversations about, you know, I mean, it goes all the way up to the foreign relations level, but these conversations have to happen at every level of society if we're going to change and make it stick. And they are. They're happening. They're happening everywhere. It's funny you mentioned sports teams. I, I'm talking to Joe Ehrman, who's doing this entire inside-out coaching thing where he says sports aren't about winning games. It's about teaching boys and men how to be, uh, how to be m- more, um, more engaged, thoughtful, connecting partners in the process of sports, right? And in, in the greater world, in life. Um, and, and, and these guys are having a huge impact. They're working with major sports leagues. They're working with municipalities in terms of their, their uh, high school sports programs. And that's just one wave out there. The, another wave is, is at-home dads. I'm going to the Dad 2.0 Con uh, in, in Texas in, in February. It, these guys are all breaking the rules of everything they've been taught about man box culture. Uh, they're, they're caregivers, and they're with their children, and they are learning the joy of that intimate connection. There are men in corporate America that are just saying, look, this, this is a mess. And if we keep doing it this way, we're all going to end up in lawsuits, you know, and, and we, we're not tapping the resource that, that, um, women and, and, uh, and other groups represent creatively. We have to, we have to get rid of this man box, a hierarchical pecking order structure and start and start doing things in ways that are more productive and and it'll improve our our business model and and when corporations start talking that way you know please let let's just let's just be shocked for a minute but that's happening so i i came into this conversation on the corporate end where i saw people doing things like there's an initiative called breaking the glass that's run by computer futures and these people are exuberant Men and women getting together to make sure that um, people can have mentors and allies, yeah. gender, yeah. regardless of their gender. And what do they need to support them in doing that? And these conversations are happening. And I want to highlight these conversations. My son has this joke. I'll leave you with this All one. Right. He says, All what right. do you get when you throw a book into the ocean? I don't know. A tidal wave. <laughs> That is a good, that is a good, uh, that's a good visual to end on, I think. So I think think that your work, the Little Me Too book for men, the Remaking Manhood book, which we haven't even talked about, your work on um, relational model of parenting and, and the work that you do on Medium, these are all fantastic places to get in touch with what you're doing and you're plugged into this network, like the, the conferences you mentioned. So if anybody wants to be plugged into this movement and feel like they have the tools, they have access to the tools, these 
These tools to change our reality are out there and we're sharing them and we want you to have them and we want to hear your questions and we want to know what do you need in your life as a man or a woman or a person of a different gender or a different sexual, whatever, whatever you need as a human to move your little piece of the world forward a little bit further out of the man box, let us know because these things are out here and we want them to spread. We want that tidal wave. Yeah. Throw that, throw that book in the ocean, man. Now, if you guys want to come find sort of a starting point for, I, I mean, I have a Facebook group called remaking manhood. I have articles on medium under Mark green under remaking manhood. I have um, a website though, is a good starting place. And it's, it, it's where you can get a sort of a summary of our books and get a sense of how to, how to get at that work. Uh, is Think Play Partners. That's thinkplaypartners.com. And then you, and you can t- Twitter Kaya and I both. We're on Twitter. Uh, mine is Remaking Manhood. Sally Haas is Think Play. And what is yours, Kaya? What- mine is Melissa D.B. Cool. Well, get, get on there. And we're on LinkedIn. I mean, we're everywhere. So, But come to Think Play Partners and have a look. You, you can see a little video summary of our book. You can read about reviews and all that stuff. And we, we would love to have you engage us in these conversations we're having on Facebook. But come join us. It's happening, man. It's happening. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. I really appreciate all your thoughtfulness and your, your experience. And I continue to look forward to seeing the work that you're putting out there. And um, I, love to, I love to share your work with everybody who I know can benefit from it, which is everybody. So great job. Thank you, Kaya. Our show today was produced by the folks at Melicity Marketing. Music for this episode of the podcast was provided by Todd Waller of Omniverse via SoundCloud. And as you leave this show today, I hope you have fun listening creatively to your loved ones. This is your host, Kaya Tingley, signing off for One Wheel, One World. May your actions make the world a better place.